People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. And we're going to be talking about wine, which is always a good thing, and we're also going to be talking about a project in the Napier area to uplift young people. And my guest is Bruce Jack. You may know his name from the Flagstone Wine Farm days. He's also the owner and winemaker of a more boutique enterprise, the Drift Estate in the Overberg Highlands. And he lives there with his wife, Penelope, their two sons, Robert and Benjamin, and as Bruce himself has said, embraced by mind-blowing biodiversity of indigenous plant and animal life, the estate sits halfway up the southernmost mountain range in South Africa. And you go on to say, Bruce, an equitable climate and fresh water being obvious benefits there. So welcome, Bruce Jack, to Find Music Rodney, Radio. thank you very much. Uh, I'm a little nervous, but uh, very Why excited. Why are you nervous, may I say? <laughs> no, this is a, is a wonderful privilege. and. I hope an enormous pleasure, but I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I'm sure at the end you'll agree. What's more, we're going to be talking about wine. You've brought me two beautiful bottles of wine to enjoy. Not in the studio, however. I also wanted to mention that the late Elspeth Jack is Bruce's mother. And she set up a sort of project in the area which Bruce has taken over and continues her work through what's known as the Head Start Trust, established in her memory to provide and promote education and outreach programs for educational enrichment, academic support, and supplementary tuition to poor and needy children. So there's lots to talk about, Bruce, but I would like to know, because I happen to have read a little article, but I'd like you to share with us how you became a wine farmer. What was it that brought you to this most natural of things, really? <laughs> Do you agree? I think, you know, these things are often uh, circumstantial in that, particularly when you start off on a path in life in your youth, you really have no no hope of knowing where you're going to go. And without um, knocking these guys to do career assessment uh, things, which I think have relevance, I certainly had no clue what I was doing and landed up doing a master's degree in literature at the University of St. Andrews, uh, trying to run away from the army. And thought in somehow I would use these skills that I had acquired in writing. So either in advertising or copywriting. I had these, you know, these wonderful visions of running off to New York and writing fantastic copy. Or film scripts. Or oh, film scripts <laughs> yes, was, was a big one because yeah, I, yeah. I, I actually loved writing plays. That was my, that was my little niche. But of course, uh, what happens is that you realize in that process of doing a master's degree uh, at an international university that you, you're pretty average um, <laughs> compared to all these other people, international superstars. So um, in that process, I, I, I had always worked um, from a very young age and enjoyed work. I'd, I'd really loved all sorts of things like delivering newspapers and working in bottle stores. And That's right. You literally did that, didn't you? Yes. You, actually, you, I think I was the only white kid ever in the, <laughs> in the 70s and 80s to run around delivering newspapers in South Africa. And then there was the bottle store. Packing, I think you did. Yes. Or uh, pa- shelf packing in bottle stores and, um, and landed up sort of just falling in love actually with the retail side of the wine industry. So I continued to do that throughout my university career. And then when that came to a terrifying halt and I realized that I had to get out there and make you know proper money and 
and to try and uh, form some sort of structure of life, I realized that writing probably wasn't going to be able to do that. So I naturally fell back into the wine industry, which was – and I suddenly realized, actually, that I was coming out of a, an exam because for the master's degree, we had to do a written exam as well. They wouldn't just um, let you write a thesis. And I came out of the exam, and it was a terrible exam, and I think it was on tonality and sh- the early short stories, Flaubert or something. It was really quite <laughs> es- esoteric. And I came out of the exam, and I, and I walked past um, a wine shop, and they had a, a display of Shirazes from around the world, or Syrahs. And it was extraordinary. I knew all the producers. I knew the size of all their estates. I knew what the wines tasted like. I, I knew the history of the estates, where they were, whether they were from Australia or South Africa or France. And I remember going home and my, my wife-to-be um, was, uh, was there and I said to her, Pen, you know, this is the most extraordinary thing. I walked out of this exam that I've spent five years studying for and, and I walked past this window and I know far more about the wine industry than I, than I know about English <laughs> literature. And she said, I've been trying to tell you that for years. So it, was, it, it became a natural sort of sunny awakening um, and, uh, um, and, and that sort of progressed working in retail, working in importing and exporting and uh, I worked for a wonderful new company just as South African wine was allowed to be sold again because Nelson Mandela had held up a glass of of South African um, sparkling wine and said it's okay now to to drink South African wine. And the world just went mad. So I was – so the timing was perfect and I was in the UK and I worked for a company called South African Wine Imports. And that eventually got sold and I landed up again with money in my pocket but uh, but, um, but – really no job and I landed up in France working for an Australian company that was making making wine in France Gosh, and um, just as a seller hand just to yeah. try it out and tasting all the time I mean oh, yeah, you said you knew what yeah. to taste was. so your tasting expertise was being developed as you went along I'm I think my father was the third member ever of wine of the month club so I had grown up with, with wine and, and an excitement about wine in the right. house. And so from a very, very early age, uh, you know, Sunday brides, I would get a little glass of, of wine with half wine, half water, mm-hmm. um, and then ask to try and think what I could smell or taste. And that sort of – so the foundation was there. If you think back on it, it was all being planned anyway, predestined in a way. But I went and worked in a wonderful cellar in the Entre de Mer. Um, in the Bordeaux region, and it was called. Uh, um, well, there were two that we were working in, but the one that I was working in, the the owner or the the, the chef de cave, who's, who's the guy in charge of it, every Sunday he would have this big lunch, and and he sort of befriended me and felt sorry for me, and and we had this amazing lunch, five courses, and and this incredible cassoulet, which you can only really eat if you're working physically. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to try and eat if you're sitting <laughs> behind a desk. Um, and uh, lots of, uh, you know, lots of Armagnac and all those sort of things. And after lunch, I had to go and finish my work, which in France is normal. And the French have this sort of inbuilt ability to have a glass of wine at lunch or half a bottle of wine at lunch and carry on working. You know, I need to go and have half an hour kip before I can kind of get going again. But anyway, I got out. Got on a forklift and went outside, and there was a thunderstorm brewing. And I, I had to clean up another piece of equipment. And while I was doing that, the forklift got struck by lightning. And it's sort of the, the – exp- I don't know if it was the explosion or the fear or whatever, but I landed on my back in the mud, in the, in the grape skins, about three or four meters from this. 
and uh, and looked up into the cloudy sky. And I think the Armagnac was helping at this stage, by the way, just <laughs> to keep sure me relaxed. And uh, it was just it was it was like a light bulb moment, but a, like a big light bulb moment um, that this was what I wanted to do. While you I were lying on your back, yeah, in the mud, yeah, and like this this wonderful warm September Bordeaux rain. And I just thought this cannot get better than this. It's the <laughs> ultimate job. Let's see what your choice of music is. Tell me about your first choice, okay. the Pablo Navarro Trio. Yes, so this is a, a, um, a, my mother, Elspeth Jack. She was a musician, a music crit- critic. She wrote for the Cape Times for 14 years. Um, and she uh, taught at UCT and, and UWC. And she was a, well, I mean, she was a child prodigy mu- musician. I mean, she was, came to UCT from, uh, from Zambia at the age of 16. And she had grade eight music in five different instruments. So uh, absolute prodigy. But she gravitated towards the guitar, uh, although she played the flute and the harp and the piano throughout her life. And she ended up getting entranced by flamenco. So did I, really. I absolutely love flamenco. And, and this is a, a band that she put together with a guy called Pablo Navarro. And they played sort of Mediterranean-style music. So this is one of the tracks from a, an early live recording in 
a live recording of the Pablo Navarro trio and the flautist there was Elspeth Jack who was the mother of my guest Bruce Jack of Drift Estates in the Overberg he's my guest here on People of Note this week and we're talking wine and also quite soon music because of the Head Start project that's happening in Napier we've reached the point where you were lying in the mud Bruce looking up at the sky with a thunderstorm and thinking I'm going into wine what did you do then did you come back to South Africa and suddenly become a winemaker there must have been a, a process I think you've heard my mom playing the flute there she was uh, a well-known person around Cape Town I mentioned that uh, she also started the Kirstenbosch concert oh yes so she yes. was the so the Pablo Navarro cheer was the first Act that started the Coast Mosh concert series, which of course those summer ones that happen in the, the summer. Evenings, yes. th- those are the ones. And my father happened to be an architect who was busy at the time building the um, Victorian Alfred waterfront. <clears throat> so the, the, I think it was. Uh, I think I was pushed to do something overseas, uh, away from the oh, you David Jackson uh, type. I think maybe kids who grow up in a small town anywhere with parents who are flamboyant and brilliant end up trying to make something of themselves <laughs> elsewhere so that they can have a little bit of self-worth. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I landed up um, applying to uh, study winemaking because now I'd, I'd experienced a little bit of what it was like working in a cellar and driving a forklift, but I had no idea about the chemistry and, and the science behind the winemaking, how to grow a grape, how to grow a vine, I mean, how to then you know choose the, the the intricacies of choosing and and putting it all together, which was a complete mystery, and I think unfortunately, is made out to be more of a mystery than it really is. Oh dear. So I um, no, I mean it, it's it's it's. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to destroy any myths, are you? No, I'm definitely going to destroy myths. That's my speciality. Um, and uh, I landed up applying to the University of Adelaide in in Australia because that then at the time had. From an English-speaking perspective, um, I had had a slightly disastrous attempt at Stellenbosch University some years earlier, which hadn't worked very well. Uh, so um, this this was a, this was the best English-speaking wine university in the world. In and Adelaide. In Adelaide, yeah. The university there's a famous agricultural college called Roseworthy, um, just outside Adelaide. But the the so we had some subjects there. But the main thrust of it was was at the University of Adelaide itself, at the Waite campus, which is just uh, just on the edges of Adelaide. And uh, it's an incredibly <clears throat> beautiful and interesting city. Actually, I, I loved living there. And it was the most exciting time to be studying wine in Australia because Australia had come to the realization that this could be one of its calling cards, wine. And um, the government was throwing an enormous amount of money 
both physically but also in creating the financial environment for other people to invest into the wine industry, into vineyards. And, and what the Australians do so well and what we in this country really do badly um, is that they, they, they have a, a goal – they get a whole lot of experts together, and part of that is education, always. And education comes with research. They go hand in hand. If you've got a great um, researcher, you get them into your university, and that, and then you get your postdoc students and your master students to, to become the lackeys, and they do the research. And so they were way ahead of anyone else's research anywhere in the world. The different universities have, have, have had this around. I mean, the University of California, Davis, uh, previously was doing similar things. Um, particularly with a, a famous lady called Dr. Anne Noble, who really was the first person to understand w- what happens in your palate when you've got um, su- a liquid that has both acid and sugar or tannin and sugar or tannin and acidity. And, and um, she, was the, she, she put this, the, this, this picture together. So we now know how to make a wine taste in a particular way. And Australia was doing similar incredible research at the time. So, again, perfect timing, really. Absolutely, Very lucky gosh. to be there at that time. Yeah. And, um, how long were you there, Bruce? How, how long it was, was a it? postgraduate degree, so it was just a year. Okay. We did uh, uh, 75% of the fourth year BSc degree um, and about um, 65% of third year BSc degree. So we were with the... The undergrads, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, sort of two years crammed into one, uh, okay. and it was uh, it was amazing. But suddenly, I'd found what I wanted to do. So, working uh, academically, which it was never my strong point, suddenly became easy. Yeah, um, because you know I was I was fired up. And bang went literature and writing film scripts. Yes, although for a you while. said you still write plays from time to time. Yeah, and poetry and short stories and all sorts of things. Okay. It's it's a bit of a. And, of course, what they don't teach you in winemaking is really marketing, um, which is weird. The things that they should be teaching you is people management, um, financial management, and marketing because that's what you – in the wine industry, our margins are so small and the error for mistakes is so big that uh, you can't just be a craftsman or person. You've got to understand how to sell the stuff. And to do that, you need to be a communicator and you need to be a people manager. Um, so uh, I actually do a lot of writing because it's about communicating a certain tone and to be authentic. For any kind of, um, I, I think, consumable brand to be authentic, people have to believe in the in, in, in the product. And that's happening more and more. And we're seeing more and more big global products have, have with, which don't really have an authentic voice starting to fall by the wayside because – we we demanding more traceability. We demanding more authenticity. We want to know the sustainability credentials. We want to know if this if this product that we're consuming cares about the environment and the people mm-hmm. around them. Right. So I I think that's that and yeah. So I think the, the English literature is finally coming in and playing a role. <laughs> well, it is. But Bruce, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I said you're not going to bust any myths. But it does make you realize that being a winemaker is just not walking around in a pair of shorts on a beautiful wine farm sipping wine. There's a whole lot more to it, business-wise, entrepreneurial-wise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a really good point. You, you, can't, you can't run a wine business without good wine. Yeah. And there, I think there have been very few people who haven't been winemakers 
and who've just been entrepreneurs who've been able to do that. I can think of a few. Mike Radcliffe is a good example at Warwick. There's Anthony Hamilton Russell at Hanson. These guys are not winemakers, but they've understood enough about the chemistry of winemaking to be able to communicate it properly and to be able to control a production and, and craft team um, uh, in, in a way that, that allows them to do what they want to do and then be very successful business people. So, um, But I think it's easier to start as a winemaker and yeah. then learn the, the business side And did it. you do that? I mean, all this training that you did, uh, at what point did you become a winemaker and make your first wine? Again, luck. I, I managed to get a job opening a winery on the west coast of California in Goodness Sonoma me. with an incredible guy called Greg LaFollette. And, and Greg was this amazing mixture of poet and scientist. He, he didn't have a, a, a – he wasn't interested in business at all. Um, uh, so it, it wasn't that. But the owner of the business was a very canny businessman, a guy called Walt Flowers, who'd made gazillions in nurseries. Um, on the East Coast. So he really understood how to package and, and, and how to make money. And then he had this um, in, incredibly flamboyant winemaker called Greg, who for the first time explained to me in language that I understood that the science of winemaking is really just a way of, of looking. But if you don't feel with the heart of a poet, you will never be able to put that together. The two need to work in synergy. And the best wines do. The best wines aren't just a, a, a sort of a, a package of the alcohol drug. The best wines make you think. They, they, they are um, cerebral in some way. And, you know, halfway through a, a really good bottle of wine, you, 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 conversations improve. Um, and, uh, and, and if the wine, I think, is imbued with that sort of energy, and, and often it's an energy of the land itself, but it, but it, but it gets it gets captured by um, posit- positivity in the winemaking process. Um, then I think you have you know beautiful dreams and uh, <laughs> and 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 it improves life. It's, Absolutely, it's one of those things. Or as they say, here here. Yeah, yeah. And Bruce, your second piece of music now, Sunday Bloody Sunday. You too. So uh, as I explained to you, I'm um, Ronnie. I divided my life up into three sections. The first one was, was obviously the youth, the baby stage, um, which was uh, very influenced by my mother. Um, and then I, I get to the bulletproof stage where, you know, from I think the age of about 17 till 25, you are completely bulletproof. And this song, uh, look, U2 is, is one of those bands which um, I think is so influential in so many ways on the people who went through that youthful period listening to them and, and how they changed music and and brought such a powerful message across. It coincided with the fact that we were going through a difficult time in South Africa ourselves. My mother happened to be quite, because of her UWC and UCT background, um, awake to the problems of apartheid towards the end of those times. So I think I was more educated and enlightened than most about the problems and the chaos of apartheid that we're facing. So this song had an impact both from that perspective and also just because it's a fantastic rock song. (laughs) And uh, yeah, when when you're that young, you need fantastic rock songs.
it's not something you hear every day on Fine Music Radio. Sunny Bloody Sunday with the group U2. And the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week, brought to you by Peter Turin Productions, Bruce Jack. Now, Bruce, you were telling us about Australia and France and California. You've had the perfect wine regions to develop your taste and palate. But then when you came back here, I think a lot of people will remember you famously for the Flagstone Wine Farm. I mean, that turned out to be enormously successful. Just tell me how it came about, how you got your first wine farm. I think there's a theme running, and it's timing. Uh, it seems like it's I mean, but positively on positively your, is yes. extraordinary. I, 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 timing and luck. I think mm. anyone who claims that they're successful without those two things is smoking something. Um, and and when I got back, the legislation was changing. So um, from 1994, our first democratic elections, um, the, there were all these boards that controlled things. There was the dairy board and the meat board, and and and, and we had similarly in the wine industry, um, and an organisation called Savas. Which, which really looked after the legislation and made it um, a controlled things. And it, it harked back to the old KWV days. So it was a very controlled environment. But in that, of course, there was abuse of, of power, political, social. And over the last 100 years, say 80 years from when these structures were put in place, you can talk to the guys out in the Breda Cliff, um, Rawsonville, Worcester area, and they will tell you that they didn't get as much water as everyone else because the power rested in Stenabosch and in Paul particularly. And so, so the legislation was kind of molded around looking after those interests. And one of the things that was, was certainly not allowed was to go and plant grapes in weird places like the Overberg or as, you know, in Hermanus or places like that. That was completely forbidden. So I think for me, as those structures were pared down to what was more sensible, for the first time we were allowed to make wine anywhere we wanted. And I started the first urban winery, which was, which was in Cape Town, called Flagstone. And I did it because I didn't have any money. And I did, certainly didn't have a beautiful old Cape Dutch farm in <laughs> Stellenbosch. So it was, but I knew how to make wine. And I'd seen that urban wineries have been around forever. I mean, if you mm-hmm. go to Alsace, every little village has an urban winery. If you go to Spain, every little village, all the wineries are in the village. So it was, it was for me, it made sense. And we were, for the first time, able to choose grapes from wherever we wanted and, and still call it Stenemosh Cabernet if the Cabernet came from Stenemosh. So I ran around. I bought a whole lot of one in 50s prior to Google Earth, a whole lot of one in 50,000 maps up on my wall. And I looked at what looked like exciting valleys. And I found the name of the farms. And I drove there and I drove up the gate. Sometimes I was met by a whole lot of bulls and, and a guy with a shotgun. And other times they welcomed me in. And, and I started buying grapes from all over the Western Cape, uh, choosing what I thought was the best places for the best grapes. And you'd bring them all because your flagstone was famously at the waterfront, wasn't it? It wasn't actually in the waterfront. It was in the old Portnet part. Because, oh, right. Yeah, I, right, I, right. I wasn't going to negotiate with my father for, oh, for yes, leasing. <laughs> but it was at the entrance to the waterfront. So right, it, it's, right. it, it, uh, it seemed to be in the waterfront. But yeah, I, it was, I rented that from, from Portnet, not Transnet. And uh, um, it was an old diesel depot. So we had to do it up and everything. But it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We worked very hard. It was more like an advertising agency than a winery. There were, we had some inc- incredible young winemakers come through what I call the Flagstone University who've gone on to run some of the most famous names in South Africa and abroad. And uh, I think being able to attract that kind of energy and that kind of ambition uh, and passion really drove Flagstone more than me. 
It must be a bit odd to have a wine farm in the middle of the city. Well, a wine factory. A winery. A winery, thank you. (laughs) In the middle of the city because you associate the wineries, as you said, with Cape Dutch houses and beautiful vines and things. But here you are in an urban environment with all your tanks and equipment. And seagulls. But it it wasn't an unusual thing overseas. So Mm -hmm. having the privilege to travel and work overseas meant that you came back without being blinded by those preconceptions. And we were able to, and of course now, you know, it's done everywhere in South Africa. So it's just before your next piece of music, you sold flagstones, didn't you? 10 years after I started it in 2008, just before the financial crash. Again, amazing timing. About two weeks before the world fell apart financially, um, I sold to the world's biggest wine company called Constellation based in Rochester, New York. I did it because I wanted to get my hands on a brand called Kamala, which was then South Africa's biggest export brand. And I had this fanciful idea that as a winemaker, you really have no influence on society other than to try and make a good product that doesn't hurt people because we are talking about a drug after all, which can do a lot of damage. So with this big brand, I had the ability, or I thought I had the ability, and I think I was partially successful to actually uplift people's lives by enforcing the growers from whom we were buying the grapes to treat their workers in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we were partially successful. We we were very involved with uh, an organization called WETA, which was the Wine Industry Ethical Trade Agreement. And after I sold Flagstone, this brand, Kamala, which was 3.5 million cases, South, Afri- South Africa's biggest brand by far. So we had a lot of pull, a lot of buying uh, power. Um, we kept Wheater going and we were able to actually, I think, positively affect a lot of people's lives at primary level on farms. Okay, well now we're going to hear about the Drift Estate and about the Head Start project, but I'm slightly surprised at your next choice. After Sunday, Bloody Sunday, there's this magnificent choral work by Thomas Tallis called Spemin Allium. Yes. Where did that come out? Well, I, I thought you couldn't put two different pieces of music <laughs> together in one radio program, so I thought that was quite a fun idea. Yes, but thank you. I landed up doing my A-levels at, at Eton after schooling in Cape Town and in the UK. And I'd always loved choral music. I loved the church and I love, um, and particularly the music, uh, influenced a lot by my grandmother, Elspeth Fraser Munn, who was a very passionate churchgoer and music lover and also music teacher, famous music teacher in Cape Town. But she, I was blown away. And we had a great choir at Bishops um, and great choir master. And I sang in the choir. But when I got to Eton in that chapel, uh, I was enraptured, and they were sort of Thomas Tallis fans. Everyone was trying to sing Tallis at the time, and uh, I just fell in love with the music. and And this is one of his more famous pieces, so I thought I would I would play it as well.
Well, that's music by Thomas Tallis, a piece called Spem in Alium, a 40-part motet. Thank you for choosing that, my guest, Bruce Jack of the Drift Estate. He's a winemaker. And we've got to the point where you sold flagstones. You've bought the Drift Estate in the Oberg Highlands, which you have said sits halfway up the southernmost mountain range in South Africa. Lovely climate, fresh water. What sort of wines do you make there? What, what is the Drift all about? So the Drift Estate was actually my father's idea. He grew up on a farm in the Transvaal uh, on Hen- in Henley on Clip. And I think he always wanted to retire to a farm. And he, he gave me a little brief. He said he wanted to be an hour and a half away from an international airport. He didn't want to see any neighbor's lights. He wanted to see <laughs> the stars at night, and he didn't want to hear any ro- any cars on the road. And if it was where you could grow grapes, Bruce, go ahead. So that was my brief. And I'd spent a lot of time uh, in Arniston. So I knew the Overberg very well, and I loved the Overberg. And um, I went to a, a, f- a farm there called Fairfield, which is owned by the uh, Van der Biles. And I met with P.K. Van der Biles, who was a, quite, quite an uh, eccentric character who I actually got on very well with. And I said to P.K., isn't there a part of the farm you want to sell? So, of course, P.K. sold me the worst part of the farm. <laughs> and, and it was this uh, really sand-blown, tiny, sad little piece of land um, called Apple's Drift which I think had been in and out of the family whenever the family needed money over the last couple of hundred years. So it was terrible for wheat farming and terrible for sheep farming, but absolutely brilliant for grapes. I, I had, uh, for a couple of years prior to that, put little temperature probes up along the Akadasberg, all the way from Stanford all the way to Arniston. And this farm, weirdly, just had the coolest temperatures. It was also because it just sits under the peak of the Akadasberg peak, which is the um, same height as Table Mountain. And if you can imagine, we farm halfway up Table Mountain. So we, the altitude being so close to the sea is unusual. In fact, I don't think there's another wine farm in South Africa that is it has this sort of situation. So you get beautifully cold nights, which helps retain the acidity of grapes. That's just one of the, the byproducts of that. And so you have this beautiful what I call mountain-born crunchy red fruit, which is unusual in South Africa. You, you've, you find it in Europe quite a lot. You find it in Sonoma. And, um, and for me, it, was a, it, 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 and it does that delivers very unusual wine. Um, sometimes we can't ripen the grapes all the time because it's such a cool farm. I mean, we, we are only slightly warmer than Burgundy if you look at long-term temperatures up there. And this is what foreigners don't understand about the diversity of temperature and climate and obviously soil as well in South Africa that we can have within a very short um, driving distance, this in- incredible diversity. And that's why our wines are so incredibly diverse and complex. There's, there's no other wine country in the world that can produce as complex wines as South Africa. My and it's, goodness. It's just about embracing that complexity and then working really. We do have to work a bit harder to make it. So what sort of wines then are you making at the drift? So it's just red wine. So cool climate, high altitude red wine. Right. And the various varietals of red wine, Cabernet, Merlot. No, none of those, none of those boring things. <laughs> Come on, Roddy. I'm just Bruce Jack here. We've got to do things differently. No, it's, it's um, wonderful varieties like Barbera from yes. the north of Italy, uh, right. Tanat from the south of France. Far more exciting than Cabernet and Merlot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, what is the bottle that you've brought me? What is that? So we've got a sparkling wine made from a variety called Triga Franca, which is the most planted grape variety in the Douro Valley in Portugal. And it makes amazing bottle-fermented sparkling wine. And then I've got a Pinot Noir, which, of course, every winemaker is Pinot Noir mad. 
uh, as am I. I call it the heartbreak grape because only one in every 10 vintages are you successful. <laughs> but you keep going because when you are successful, uh, the wine can change your life. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we, we focused on. And I brought you what I thought you would. I, oh, hope, well, I hope you love the peanut. I, I love it too. I'll report back. Well, now that we know what sort of wines you make, I'm intrigued by two things that I want to fit in quickly before I let you go, Bruce. And that is, first of all, you've got Bruce Jack Wine, a sort of company that you've developed, as well as this Head Start project. And in the short time that we have left, let's start with Bruce Jack Wines. So Bruce Jack Wines is a project that is focused on value for money wines. So whereas the drift is all about uh, making the best wine in the world or trying to, um, the Bruce Jack Wines is really about, about making everyday drinkable wines. We do have some fancy wines, but generally it's it's about proving that South Africa can make the best value for money wine in the world. It's it's not letting accountants run the production process. And so we can put what wines we want together. But there's and also your work ethic, isn't there? Yeah, so the, the partner is uh, in South Africa is a company called UniWines. They're based in Rawsonville and they are without doubt the most enlightened and progressive wine company in South Africa. They are also the biggest wine producer in South Africa, 50 to 60 million liters a year. So they are my partners in this project, which allows us to have uh, to be able to draw on an amazing array of wines uh, around the Western Cape and package by very careful blending. So if there is a craft and an art, it's in the blending of wine, that, that, that um, which, which obviously I've been doing for a long time, so I can kind of do that in my sleep. And that allows us to put um, in, an incredible product out there, which I think we can be really proud of. And South Africa can do this again and again. I mean, it's it's one of the things that we're really good at, but we've got to do it in a way that uh, that is true and authentic and, and allows us to build brand South Africa and uplift everybody. Everyone needs to take part in the success of that. And then just finally, the Head Start project, which is… Yeah, so um, it's actually the Head Start Music Trust oh, because course, it's really yes. focused on music. Um, so the idea is to use music as… Uh, catalyst in very poor rural areas to be able to give kids the opportunity not over, not only to learn how to read and write and play music, which um, gives kids self-confidence and self-worth, these two things that really bind societies together. You rip those away, and that's what has happened over the last 350 years of, of colonialism, slavery, and apartheid. That, that those things have been ripped away. And, and to rebuild, there's two major things that happen in South Africa in these poor rural areas. One is sport, and the other is the church. Those are the glue, societal glue. It's, it's the, how you forge positive mythology. And with positive mythology, you can pass on positive stories and you create, create a society that, that looks after itself. The other one is music. And this is naturally in all of us. And with kids particularly, every kid will give them a drum. They'll play the drum. It's, 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 it's inherent. And so we're using music to create that glue. But also it, it helps. We, we know there's proof that if you can read and write music, you are better at maths. You're better at languages. And we're finding uh, the, the classes where we've done music, uh, we're focusing on the Protea Primary School in Napier. We, uh, a wonderful lady called Elida in Napier has, has um, sort of got this project off the ground for us. It's managed by a guy called VPF and Sale, who's a contemporary of mine from from Bishops. And and together, these two have done incredible things with giving kids the opportunity to really believe in themselves again. And they they don't miss school anymore. You know, a 98% rate of going to school because of the music classes. So it's transforming. And to watch it happen so quickly and so effectively just through the power of music is mind-blowing. 
Well, congratulations on that, Bruce, and all strength to your arm. What a wonderful thing to be involved with. And we have to end it there now. Time has run out. But the Rosie Bruce Band, your last piece, here's a little, another family music connection. Yes, so Rosie Bruce is my goddaughter. She's a daughter of one of my best mates at school, Cameron Bruce, who's a local doctor, GP in Cape Town. And he had a band at school with another guy called Josh Hawks, who is the bass player for Freshly Ground called The Streaks, which I, I managed <laughs> really? at, uh, during university. I was fired by them, by the way, for being a bad manager. But uh, I've, I've sort of been involved in music uh, at, at all sorts of different levels. And Rosie has the most incredible voice. So there will be many people. I think this is the first time she's ever had radio play. Oh, good. But there will be – so you guys out there are, are listening to, I think, what will be South Africa's next huge superstar. That's Rosie Bruce, and we're going to play out with that. But in the meantime, Bruce Jack of the Drift Estate and with the Headlands Music Trust, thank you very much for telling us a fascinating story about the magical world of wine. That's very hard to do, that.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Something magical is coming your way this festive season. Captain Hook's dropping anchor and Tinkerbell is flying in specially. The Lost Boys will be found and Wendy's in the house. Be awestruck by the most dazzling skating ever seen as Peter Turin presents the world-famous Imperial Ice Stars in this spectacular and new show, Peter Pan on Ice. Experience this much-loved family classic at the Artscape Opera House from January 15th to February 2nd, 2020. Book now. 